there's never been a better time to be a direct-to-consumer business. Join us as we uncover the strategies and scaling secrets of the world's most disruptive brands and agencies. This is DTC Podcast. Hello and welcome to the D2C Podcast. I'm Eric Dick and today we are super lucky to have returning guest Jeremy King, CEO of Attest Customer Research, one of our partners on the newsletter side. Uh, They've recently compiled an amazing digest called the D2C Digest that basically includes reports on key consumer trends from real data, uh, stories on leading businesses and advice from D2C leaders themselves. Uh, you know, we're in such an interesting time, Jeremy, uh, in the this this sort of post-pandemic era where we've just lived through this incredible growth uh, of of the D 2 C space, uh, due mostly to, to you know to a lot of the changes that the the pandemic brought. Um, but I'm really curious, you know, being a, a customer research a customer uh, surveying tool, you just have access to so much data about about attitudes. Um, and trends uh, in the D2C space. What are you seeing now that sort of vaccination programs are underway and we're starting to recover from the pandemic? What do you think the outlook is for D2C businesses? Will the surge uh, it continue that we've seen in online sh- in online shopping or will it recede? What do you think? Well, it doesn't really matter what I think because we wanted to put some facts behind this. There's a lot of chat and trends and ideas about exactly what's going on in D2C. And that's why we wanted to create some of this real research and put some numbers behind it and start to quantify where is this happening most? Where isn't it happening that could be counterintuitive? So what we did this time, focusing on the US, we ran a survey of 2000 people nationally representative across the US between the ages of 18 to 66, but perfectly weighted. And it shows a lot of these things, points for optimism, big differences in how people are responding to uh, responding to the pandemic, jumping on different trends. But also there's very specific opportunities and drivers within. And we wanted to put some facts and bring to light exactly where to look and what to know, because that's what we're all about here at Attest. So I've got seven things to talk about today across a whole bunch of different topics. But the overall theme is there's a lot to be optimistic about. US consumers plan to continue to shop online and purchase subscription products much more, especially millennials. But there's a whole bunch of facts and counterintuitive things within, and that's what we wanted to bring to life today. Nice. Yeah, I, you know, when, when this first all, all happened, I remember I was I was saying the phrase 10 years in 10 months, which looking at it now, it's funny, I read a I read a report from Common Thread Collective the other day, and saw that they analyzed their data. And it wasn't quite, it wasn't a 10 year growth period in terms of the amount of, of percentage of, of purchases made online versus offline. It, the, the growth wasn't that high it, in their data and ended up being more like, uh, you know, two or three years worth of growth in this one year in terms of where we thought we'd be in terms of e-commerce pur- purchases. But I'm wondering, you know, what were some of the differences between these different age ranges and their their expectations? Were were older people less likely to continue shopping online? Or was it just that younger people were much more likely to be shopping online? Yeah, so a few fun facts, then we'll get into the details. So we found that Gen Z are far more excited to return to physical shopping, despite being the most digitally native. So that's a bit of a counterintuitive thing. But the the real question is, what is the mix of activities? What are they going to do online versus which bits of going back to physical retail are those Gen Z is really going for? 
We spoke last time about how marketplace is really important for discovery of D2C brands, but also for understanding opportunities and finding new growth methods. Um, and despite an appetite for online shopping, both male and female and regionally, everyone's appetite varies by category. But to get specifically into the different demographics in online shopping, there are big differences across each age and demographic band. So let's pick out four points on this. So one, millennials far more committed to online shopping than any other generation. Over 40% plan to shop more online in the near, near future, and 71% of millennials prefer online shopping. What's weird is when we start to look into that, millennials state a preference for shopping online in seven of nine categories we looked at. The two categories that stand out, the ones where they don't want to shop online more, are food and drink and furniture and homewares. Um, we can guess that might be something to do with juggling work and young kids, perhaps it's convenience they find so attractive, but it's very clear that a lot of millennial purchasing is being driven more and more online, except in food and drink and furniture, which is interesting in itself, particularly when it comes to building D2C propositions. Um, then, despite being the most digitally native, only 58% of Gen Z prefer online shopping. So we compare that to 71% for millennials, it's only 58 for Gen Z. And that's a shopping preference for online in just one category, which is clothing and shoes and accessories. Uh, so interesting just to see, even across these quite close generations, quite a big split in what their behavior is driving them to do and their preferences for online versus offline. Popularity of category uh, clothing, shoes, and accessories is massive. Almost 76% of the demographics say they have shopped online for shoes and clothing in the last six months. And that's clearly a big driver. But already we see when we drive into the, when we look into the underlying trends, these have been driven by very different preferences and needs. Then last point, Gen X, who are 41 to 55 right now, they prefer to shop online in four categories, electronics and home appliances, baby and kids, sports and hobbies, gifts and flowers. Again, completely different set. Boomers who are older, again, same, same preferences, except removing the electronics and home appliances, which they prefer to buy in physical stores. So if we're out there looking for who, which consumer segments to focus on, how to build a great D2C business, which bits have tailwinds and are growing faster. There's actually big differences across the different ages and demographic bands and even in different categories. So we can say online shopping and D2C is growing, but actually it's really growing in some spots and really not in others. And it's consumers that hold the light to what is true and what is not. And that's why it's worth doing research like this. I love it. And this idea of, of Gen Z versus millennials is interesting to me because it's like there's a, a bit of a turning happening where millennials are just the, the most digitally native, um, you know, sort of generation. And then Gen Z, it's like there's a slight um, a rejection, not necessarily rejection, but a, but a slight sort of return to, you know, to, to maybe tradition or, or to other things. And it's interesting that they're actually less, you know, not as keen uh, to shop online as millennials. I feel like that's a pretty interesting insight. Yeah, I mean, it's easy to, to guess why that is in that, you know, my, my subjective guess would be Gen Z's have had more time to build the habit and they're just reverting to that habit. Um, they're just going back to the way things used to be and what they're comfortable with, whereas, you know, younger generations less so. Then again, we see in this data, it's actually very specific things that they're doing uh, that are different between millennials and Gen Z. So if you are a D2C company and you're trying to sell to millennial Gen Z and Gen X, 
Here are a whole bunch of really interesting insights that tell you where to look, where the tailwinds are and where the opportunity is, but more importantly, where it's not, where people will go back to old habits and actually the opportunity is smaller than meets the eye. And that's really, really worth knowing and really valuable, which is why we wanted to do this. Very cool. Now we're going to record a little intro for this just because I, I didn't say it in the intro, but if you're listening to this and you want to get all of this data in one easy to digest format, you're going to want to go to askatest.com slash D2C, where a test has put together uh, this entire uh, research in an in a easy, e- easy to read format. Um, uh, so, so go there after the fact and, and make sure you take in all this information because there's so many different nuggets, but depending on where your brand is, how you're positioned, how you can kind of take this data and, uh, and kind of use it going forward. Okay, so the second area that we're going to be talking about is subscriptions. We, we recently uh, sort of polled our audience. Whenever we put out new content, uh, we like to ask, you know, how interested the audience is. Uh, and so we put out a big piece on subscription content and we got an overwhelming response. I just think our we have a very savvy audience. They, they recognize that subscription revenue is our favorite revenue as entrepreneurs. Uh, and so I'm really interested what your research sort of unearthed about attitudes towards, towards subscription in the D2C space. Yeah, so here we see an all-time high opportunity. The market is opening and consumers are predisposed to buy, predisposed to try, and more people are on subscriptions than ever before. We spoke last time a lot about personalization, authenticity, network effects, specific products, and now is the best time to get into D2C. But what we saw in this data around subscriptions specifically, two points. So about who has product subscriptions already, millennials have the most. And then we see this taper off. Millennials, 24% roughly, then 15% for Gen Z, 14% for Gen X, and then only 9% for boomers. So we see who's already into subscriptions much, much higher for millennials, almost three times higher for millennials, and then tailing off down to boomers who are clearly less into this kind of stuff. Is that an opportunity? Is there a subscription product or a business model or a proposition out there where we can get those boomer and Gen X numbers up? What do subscription products for older people look like and how does that need to be different from the core and most famous products we have today? That's what this leads me to think about. Big opportunity there, evidently. And then secondly, 28% of Americans are open to purchasing a new product subscription this year, right now. And again, we see this tapering. 40% of millennials are open to trying a new product subscription right now. 29% for Gen Z, 28% for Gen X, and then back down to 9% for boomers. So again, we see this propensity curve where there's something that's stopping boomers and Gen X getting into this, but Gen Z and millennials respectively are much more into it. Gen Z and Gen X actually quite close together. So again, here we see that there's a great propensity to launch and for people to try and receive subscriptions, but the opportunity is easiest with millennials and already biggest with millennials. It's way behind and harder with boomers. And it just makes me wonder, what does a subscription product in D2C look like that could attract boomers? Get them to try, get them interested and get them to those levels for millennials and Gen Zs. Because if we can do that, and if someone can crack that, there's a whole bunch of opportunity there. And that's a really cool thing that came out of this research. Very cool. I, I imagine it's vertical specific as well in terms of you know what people are, are interested in. Uh, you know, getting a subscription. And, and I'm sure that is always, you know, that's an evolving category as well, where people are more willing to try different things um, on subscription over time. 
Um, so if you're thinking of starting a subscription program, this data would indicate that it is a, a, a good opportunity to do so. And then, yeah, finding something that would appeal to boomers on subscription would be a, a really interesting challenge. Yeah, um, clearly this data says easiest and biggest in millennials, biggest opportunity, but hardest is in boomers and everything else is in between. But it just makes me wonder what does subscription for boomers look like and why don't they try today? And how can we systematically pick apart those reasons? I think that's what we'll be researching next. Love it. Uh, well, we will stay tuned for that. Uh, and then, then when it comes to gender differences, what did you see in the difference between men and women uh, and, and their propensity for D2C shopping? Yeah, you mentioned at the beginning that there's been a big change in online, offline behavior, and it's male shoppers that grow the, show the greatest change towards D2C. So one third of men plan to shop online more, 33%. Well, 9% plan to shop online less right now. So that's a net increase between those two, 24% increase in male online shopping activity. On the other hand, that's 21% for women and 12%, uh, 21% doing more, 12% going less. So that's a net move of 9%. So we see this two and a half times greater change net net for men versus women. When we look into a category level, men are more committed to shopping online for things like sports, uh, gifts and flowers, electronics and home appliances. We see these big gaps in each of those categories between men and women. So this tells us that the biggest change from the past to now is for men, and it's those specific categories that do it. Men are also, going back to our last point, more open than average to look to take out a new product subscription this year. 33% are for men versus 23% for women. So here we see this interesting set across the age ranges, across the gender splits, across the categories, across subscriptions, but it's men who are more positive on these things in general than women. So here again, we see the opportunity, more male skewed. Maybe if you have a lovely network effects product, you start with the men, that's gonna be the easiest starting position and you find ways to get men to refer to women. If you want to pick a category that sports and hobbies, gifts and flowers and electronics and home appliances, men far ahead of women on their looking to try and commitment to shopping online for those things. We put that all together, men are showing the greatest change. And within that, we unlock specific opportunities to grow great businesses. Do you think, do you think this is because men, like, you know, typically men are just a little slower learners, you know, we're a little bit, a little bit behind the curve with women. Do you think women were just maybe ahead of the curve more with online shopping and men just have more room to catch up more opportunity here? Or do you think it really is just men that have really locked on to online shopping more? Oh, I would love to test that. Um, yeah. I could give you a subjective guess answer, but I'm just one person. This is the whole reason we do research is so that we have much, much larger people, uh, audiences of people than just me. Yeah. Um, I guess that you're intuitively right, but we exist for guesswork without growth. And I think that's why that would be a great thing to test next. I love it. Uh, very cool. So what about regional differences? So, you know, you're, you're a company that has a big presence across all of North America and Europe as well with, with customers in both of these regions. Um, but specifically in the U.S., there's large differences within the geographical regions of the U.S. What, what are you seeing uh, in terms of, uh, you know, people in the Midwest versus, you know, other parts of the country? Yeah, huge variations within in that it's, it seems to be all about population density and driving distances. And that's why we need to understand the actual drivers of what's going on and the implications. So let's pick out a few data points. So people who live in the Midwest are 
at least likely to maintain their online shopping habits post-pandemic. On the other hand, in the Northeast, we see a, a net 27% increase in online shopping. So this Northwest, uh, Northeast, Midwest divide could be down to the fact that the Northeast is much more densely populated than the Midwest. So e-commerce logistics are better, simpler, we get better deliveries, closer supply chains. Um, what's more, far fewer people own cars in the Northeast than the Midwest. So it's likely easier for many people to order things online than to have them delivered to their homes. Um, Put that all together, population density and therefore opportunity seem to be a big driver of these regional differences. And when we start to piece these things together with the ages, the subscription preferences, the different categories, we start to form a picture about these little overlapping heat maps about where opportunity lives. And yes, D2C is growing and succeeding, but it's really driven by these very specific things. So some of the quite counterintuitive. But going back to the beginning, big variations. And for each of us in D2C, we need to understand the drivers and what that implies for our business model and our proposition. And that's the key when it comes to regional differences. Uh, it's really interesting because I, in, in retail, you know, you're going to want to have a very granular understanding of, of you know, you're the sort of the boots on the ground, the, the products on the shelf in, in each of these places. And so therefore, you have a very regional approach with how you scale out a D2C brand on, on retail quite often. Whereas with, with digital, most marketers sort of think of the U.S. as this monolith and they yeah. sort of will just say, OK, advertise to the U.S. It's interesting to think of these like, you know, quite regional differences and how that actually might play out in your marketing um, on on the on the digital side where you could actually be targeting, for instance, you know, you could be not excluding the Midwest, but really focusing on these areas where the uptake on D2C is much higher. Um, I could see that being an, an interesting test. And one of the things we're finding on the pilot house side, on the agency side, is some of the things like, you know, we always strove to, to reach the broadest. We, we still try strive to reach the broadest audience. But in this new like iOS 14 environment, we're finding the, um, real success in going after specific um, categories, whether that's geographic categories, device categories. Some of these things that were more popular in terms of targeting um, in previous years are kind of rearing their heads again. So I feel mm -hmm. like data like this could provide some really interesting uh, opportunity to get more specific with the way we target our digital ads. Completely. I mean, I was talking to a company in Texas uh, a few weeks back and they were saying, we've had great success in Texas, but you know, some people in Texas think about Texas as an almost independent nation sometimes. And it can feel that way occasionally. And they were thinking, where do we go next? Where across the US? And they were almost looking at the US as um, international companies look at the EU. These are different member states. Lithuania is very different from Portugal. So they were sitting in Texas and wondering, do we launch in the Northeast? Do we launch in California? Is this a Midwest thing? And we could help them with a whole bunch of data, figure out which parts of the market have the greatest predisposition to give you the success you're looking for. Where are the buying factors, the underlying needs and the things that work in your favor? Where are those most present? And we can quickly triage out which parts of the US actually are most like Texas or surprisingly hold buying factors and needs that are most like Texas. And that could take a very, allow them to take a very familiar business model and simply apply it to different geographies over time, also up into Canada, which is really cool. So put that all together, knowing where to look and knowing where the greatest propensity or predisposition is, gives you a disproportionate advantage and probability of success. You just need to find it in the data and it's all there for the taking. And I love this from a structural standpoint, and then a messaging standpoint is is something else. You know, you'd have the you know you'd know where to attack. You know, systematically, 
you know, through this data. And then within each of these regions, there's just so many increasing differences between a place like Florida and almost anywhere else in the United States or whatever. So, so by breaking these things down structurally, you know, through your data and then going in and even being able to tweak your marketing based on these regional differences, um, and that, you know, as you say, the tailwinds based on the data that, that a test would provide, I, I think it could be a bit of a new paradigm in how people advertise in a country as diverse as the US. It's an interesting opportunity. The interesting point here is that the advantage we have in D2C is that we don't have constraints about how we make these geographic moves. We don't need to take working capital and invest in physical premises. We don't need to make two, five, 10 year commitments to build physical businesses, hire staff. We can be quite flexible and add these geographies or even try them at small scale, even at painted door tests or simple research that shows you where to look and where the opportunity is. And with D2C models, we can act upon that quite quickly and flex and flow and evolve with their market takes us. It's a big advantage we should play into, but our guidance is always use some data to make sure that you know where to look, where you're going to succeed and exactly what it needs to look like. And any localization or adaptation you need to make, that can get you a huge advantage. And you can beat out offline players so easily by thinking about the core advantages and being far smarter about where to look. The, the word that you mentioned early on that I keep thinking back is tailwinds. Uh, you know this, and I think that really is what a test allows you to uncover in a lot of ways. And and in our previous podcast, we were talking about getting the you know we we know we have all the data from our customers. We know we know what our customers love about our products. If you're a good entrepreneur, you're you're messaging them, you're doing things that don't scale with them to get deep insights into how they use the product, how they like it. But what a test does, it it allows you to know the things you don't know. Uh, yes. and, and I think that's where this idea of tailwinds comes in, where you can, and, and then on top of those things, you can layer, as you're saying, you know, these, these regional tactics or, or different messaging strategies, and just really take advantage of those underlying, you know, trends and tailwinds, which I think is a, a neat opportunity for people. Yeah, the delight for us is when we, when we help clients find things that are counterintuitive, things that challenge your version of reality, things that really surprise you, but you can see and convinced and you can take bold moves on the back of the data that we produce. Things that you wouldn't have seen otherwise or things that you wouldn't have done at full strength otherwise. Suddenly we can give you this information for your intuition and the ability to dissolve doubt and make really bold moves. And that's where you discover tailwinds. And by knowing where the tailwinds are, you can say, we're going to go all in on these three moves and two of them are things that we've never thought of before. That's super interesting. And again, with the DTC business model, we have all the opportunity to jump on these tailwinds and move far faster than competitors or incumbents. And that's a great gift. I love it. Now, this is maybe a small issue. I just wanted to know, you, you mentioned a painted door test. What is a painted door test? Oh, that's when you set up an ad or a proposition that has nothing behind it. So just creating a, an ad window or a referral campaign where it doesn't actually come through, all you're looking for is the first action. I'm interested, or I would do this, or someone call, clicks on a CTA or a call to action, something like that. You don't need to build out the whole experience to test whether people are going to want it. You just need to test, you just need to build the bit which set, lets people tell you, I want this. Um, you will disappoint a small number of people because it doesn't actually exist yet, but you will know very quickly what conversion rates are going to be and the overall directional read about tailwind or no tailwind. That's quite interesting. And again, you can do that in a test. You can send out specific propositions, a whole range of different ideas, tests, color schemes, core ingredients, prioritization of delivery versus um, discounts on initial orders, 
all the sorts of things we need to know in D2C, you can run these tests and figure out which bits really matter and you can get a directional read in a day or two about which bits are gonna work most where, and then that's where you start to create your own tailwinds, which are really fun. So I speak about seeing things that others don't and discovering what your target market really wants, but you can create these things and that's what we've made really easy. Okay, let's talk about marketplaces because this is this is another area that your research uncovered. And it's just, again, this is another one of those trends with tailwinds. Everyone I talk to is talking about um, you know, these marketplaces, different e-retail opportunities being, um, you know, in our era of consolidation, like just increasingly important. So how did consumers see marketplaces in your research? So for consumers, really important. But as we discussed last time for some businesses, and we talked about the case of dry soda, non-alcoholic drinks, there's kind of an implicit choice in here. Seeing marketplaces as a, as a channel and as a permanent home for your products and ideas and propositions, or is that more of a place that you see as a, as a venue for discovery of your brand, your D2C proposition and everything you stand for? Um, a lovely quote I heard, marketplaces are the new department stores for D2C. Could not be more true. Place for discovery or is this your permanent channel? And what our data shows is that sites like Amazon are clearly the primary place many Americans in all demographics start their online shopping journeys, especially millennials. It doesn't mean that this is the permanent home or the permanent channel where you need to sell everything forever. You don't need to sign up to Amazon and hope that that works out. You can use Amazon almost like a shop window where like department stores, people discover your product, but then you can convert them to direct purchase as long as there's a really good reason to do so. But that's opportunity, that's quite fun. Um, two points on this. Marketplaces play an important role in discovery. 69% uh, of respondents agree that marketplaces help them discover new brands. That rises to 80% for millennials. So really big across the board, 69%, higher again in younger generations. More than half of respondents, 53%, said they're more likely to try a brand on a marketplace than directly with the brand's own website. The key word being try. This rises to 63.5% of millennials. So here we see marketplaces do play an important role, both for discovery and for ongoing sales, but we can start to detach those things. If you see it as a venue for discovery, and then you think about the subsequent step as a conversion, either to a direct purchase or to an ongoing channel behavior, we can start to see marketplaces as part of our funnel. So again, marketplaces are the new department source for D2C, but in the D2C model, we have a bunch of choices about what happens next. Very powerful for adoption and awareness, but again, there's a chance to bring back control and keep it direct. In terms of upcoming research, and I know this is something we're going to talk a little bit about as well, uh, you know, an ongoing partnership with D2C Newsletter and our ability to actually leverage your tool uh, for some interesting customer research. But to me, that that piece of, of once they discover a new brand, what are those factors that allow you to make the connection so that the next time they purchase, it's going to be on your site, or that, or, or you know, what are the factors that 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 would that would get someone, you know, to have a product experience and then come back to it via the, the direct D2C channel versus one of these marketplace channels. That would be an interesting thing to, to, to try to figure out. I would love to research that. I'd also love to research the opposite, which is if you are buying direct, what makes you maybe come back to a marketplace? Is it the fulfillment and delivery? Is it security? Is it the payments? Is it the information control? 
What is it? Are there people that do the opposite and go from direct to marketplaces for specific reasons? I personally have never done that, but I'm pretty sure it happens and there would be some really surprising reasons why. So maybe that's something we can research next. That'd be really fun. Maybe if there's anyone out there who's interested, comment, let us know, tell us, and we can actually research these things for real in a matter of hours or days. So if a specific angle and this is interesting, let us know and we'll look into it. I love that. You can email me direct at eric at directtoconsumer.co uh, if you have any specific questions that kind of come up out of, you know, in your mind as you're listening to this or as you're, you're reading the write-up of this. Uh, we'd love to to get some more fodder for, I'm excited to put a test to the test and really, uh, you know, generate some some data for some upcoming pieces here. I think I think there's a big opportunity. Yeah, these are the ones that we get really excited about, particularly when it's something surprising or counterintuitive. People leaving marketplaces, why? People going to marketplaces, why? And it's always something weird. Um, so let's uncover what weird is and why this happens. And that's probably a really important and valuable thing to learn for many DTC companies. Totally. Uh, okay, so the next topic we are covering is discovery. So how how these DTC brands are discovered, uh, how these buying factors kind of lead to products being discovered. What did you uh, determine with your research on this topic? Yeah, so last time we talked about buying factors like free delivery, and we need to understand how to balance things like customization and preferences for each target buyer or sub segment with exactly the overall choices and products we're looking for. So what to do and what you're overriding with each trade-off you make. If you prioritize free delivery over network effects, what are you going to get and what sort of consumers are you going to respond to that and vice versa? Um, so we looked into this in a bit more detail. Three points here. Recommendations from a friend is the number one thing that persuades someone to check out a new DTC brand across all demographics. This is universal. Recommendation from a friend is king. It's the queen, it's the emperor, it's everything. It's important that you can provide a recommendation-worthy experience and also provide a good venue for that recommendation. Make it make it worth recommending and make it easy to recommend. That's things like a great product, a great unboxing experience, et cetera. But even more important is to give, make it easy to add a few friends' email addresses, give you a code that lets you refer, link it directly to social channels, make that one click rather than copy, paste, choose friends, send, hope. Make it seamless, make it easy, as sim seamless as easy as you want your marketing funnel to be. That's the key. But recommendation, universal. Unlike everything else we've talked about today, that is for everybody. Second, DTC brands wanting to acquire millennial or Gen Z consumers should look to social media advertising. So obvious, but that's why we talk about recommendation happening there. That's where we start to show content about our products, but much more organic, much more authentic, much more built around personal needs and preferences. And that's where we start to get geographic and local and social networks themselves. Third, great quality website, important for all demographics. So whether you're buying through a channel, direct, subscription, one-off purchases, the website experience and that feeling premium like a department store, like a brilliant marketplace, like the D2C company that you already work with and love and admire and trust and respect every day. Having a great quality website is key. Great news for everyone out there developing websites. But these things are easier and easier to do. And the, the consistency we see across our client base and also D2C companies that we admire, there's now some quite consistent factors about what great quality website actually means but it comes down to things like trust and feel and link to my personal values. Those really matter. But we talked about buying factors, it's recommendations and, um, 
and social media that seem to drive a lot of the adoption and discovery. Um, beyond that, driving sales, fast and free delivery is the number one thing for Gen Z and millennials to make a purchase. If you've got that, they love you. If you don't have it, they hate you. That's followed by offering a discount on the first order. So it is price sensitivity, but if you don't have fast and free delivery, Gen Z and millennials, you will lose a wedge of them. You will lose conversion rate right there. It's the number one thing for Gen Z and millennials. And then for the older demographics, the top two motivators are the same, but they're reversed. Much more about discounting and a little bit on fast and free delivery. Fast and free delivery, nice to have. Discount and value for me, really important. Lovely models we've started seeing more and more is discount for the referrer and the referee. If you send referrals, you get a discount. If you receive the same referrals, you also get a discount. If both people activate, you get a shared discount. Again, great way to drive network effects, but there's a benefit to share, there's a benefit to receive, there's a benefit that we know each other, there's a benefit that we have shared interest, preferences, customization, and values. That's what you can do with the DTC model, and all of this is out there. But if you don't have fast and free delivery and you don't offer some sort of discount or benefit, you will start to lose people, particularly Gen Z and millennials and fast and free delivery. Super interesting. So we put all these things together. Easy to get recommendation from a friend. That's the number one thing. Got to pair it with fast and free delivery and discounting on the first purchase. Look to social media for younger people. That's incredibly obvious. But for older people, it's more about discounting the fast and free delivery. And we pair this with the thing about marketplaces. Got to make the discovery point feature these motivating buying factors. That's the key. If you don't have these, you will lose some consumers immediately and you will lower your conversion rates. So you've got to know these facts. These are the basics and this is how you play. Interesting. One thing I'd like to know from, you know, another thing that we can note to, to, to look into the research is what, what do people mean when they say fast delivery in a world where you've got like same day delivery on prime, like what does even fast delivery mean to these different, to these different, uh, you know, sectors? I'm sure it means something different to potentially the boomer audience than it would to a Gen Z audience who is, who is primed on prime to receive it the same day. Yeah, we could joke that like in a world of transatlantic cruise liners, fast delivery for a boomer audience is anything under two weeks. So, you know, oh, that's really offensive. Maybe I shouldn't say that. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're, we're late millennials, I think. So we can, we can cast aspersions. No, no big deal. Okay. Um, <laughs> um, but that's something we could research as well. So yeah. People, going back to the point about marketplaces and Amazon is so easy to say Amazon owns everything, but they don't. We set the basis of what is fast and free delivery based on what is prime, which is usually next day, unless you're urban and low density, in which case you don't have a choice. It's probably next few days or your Amazon prime day. What does that mean and what does it matter for each of these demographics and each of these categories? Fast and free delivery, big catch-all term, but when you drill into it, I'm sure we'll find variations about what fast means and what you're prepared to give up or take in exchange for free. Would you give up fast in exchange for free? Is fast one day, same as Amazon, or does fast actually mean this week, in which case you can probably do something much cheaper and you can get people off marketplaces and into direct and you don't need to have Amazon Prime-like capabilities. So here again is where we can start to make really fundamental business choices based on knowing target consumers better. But to your point, fast and free delivery means lots of things. Knowing what it means for your target market is what matters. 
I love it. And then even just recommendations, it's, 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 the, it's the, the dark matter of how things grow uh, is, is, you know, the word of mouth. Like if, you, if people love your product enough to actually recommend it. And the thing that, that comes to mind there is something we're dealing with on our or working with on our referral program as well is this idea of extrinsic and intrinsic value for people. So extrinsic is uh, we'll both get a discount. Uh, so, so therefore sign up, we'll get a discount. That's great. And then intrinsic is like, I want to share this with you because it made my life better and it could make your life better in the following ways. And I feel mm -hmm. like if you can combine both intrinsic and extrinsic rewards, like obviously um, I think even just that shared discount gets a little bit to intrinsic because it's kind of communal and it's, it's sort of saying, Hey, we're both going to benefit uh, from this uh, if we do it. But I feel like, yeah, if you can combine both intrinsic and extrinsic rewards, that's the way to maximize your recommendations, which will really help your, your business grow. Oh, I'm completely with you. I've heard this referred to in the past as the rule of Optimus Prime, which was the in, in Transformer toys when I was a kid. If you got a whole bunch of them together, you could build this one giant Transformer called Optimus Prime, who was the leader of all the Transformers, but you needed a whole bunch of the toys to do it. Very smart marketing from Mattel, who I think made the products and that you needed all the products to make the giant, um, the biggest, best Transformer. But that leads to, if you have mutual discounting, it's more likely that your friends will have other Transformers, but you also need your other friends to have Transformers so that you can get together and make Optimus Prime and have a really fun Transformers party. So rule of Optimus Prime, Prime applies. If you can balance the intrinsic and the extrinsic, make something better together, but there's also a benefit along the way, mixing those things is really important. Which ones really matter and move the needle for your target market? That's the bit that we're always missing information we need to discover. And again, that's something you can test really easily with a test. This is the second podcast in a row that Optimus Prime has been brought up. I just want to call attention to that. And uh, thank wow. you for that metaphor. I think we'll have to clip that out. That, 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 that one will belong on social media, the Optimus Prime uh, paradigm, which I, I think uh, will be really sweet. So let's wrap up with the the last category here, which is the actual categories within the D2C landscape. You know, we're talking things, uh, hobbies, sports, electronics, food and drink, furniture, homewares, all, all these different specific categories that our audience may find themselves members of. What did your research find in terms of which which, which the winning categories sort of overall are in, in this uh, post-pandemic world? Yeah, we put this one last because most of our conversations, people want to start here, you know, which categories are winning, which should I do more of, which product should I launch, and I'll get into my product ideas I've got for that category that you say is winning. But as we've seen today, it, it is about combining all of these things we talked about. Where is online shopping increasing? Where is propensity to try and subscriptions, biggest, lowest, biggest opportunity, but hardest to do? Gender differences, we saw men are more likely to try. Regional differences, there's a whole bunch of different drivers we need to understand. Marketplaces, discovery, that can live or die and create or destroy these category winners and losers. Discovery, what matters and how are we gonna get consumers? In my mind, all of these things are more important for us as we build D2C companies than which category is winning or losing overall. But it is fun to talk about. So the winners are hobbies and sports, electronics and accessories, clothing and clothing accessories. Those are the three very clear winners. There's some big gaps between those, hobby sports, electronics, and then clothing. Losing right now, reducing overall, counterintuitively food and drink, furniture and homewares, people wanna go and see it. Makeup and personal care, people wanna try it, feel it. Feel the, the L'Oreal world word premiumness of the product. We can guess about why this is, but we did see this clear overall result, winning hobbies and sports, electronics, clothing, losing food and drink, furniture and homewares, makeup and personal care. 
But as we saw at the beginning, what really matters is knowing within these different category moves that are constantly coming and going like the stock market, knowing your target customers better than anyone else is what leads to your success. And it's all these factors that we've been talking about that put it together. And that's why we built a test is to make that easy. And now, if, if you're sitting there with a food and drink company, you're like, ah, I'm losing now. You know, it, it, this is obviously, there, it, as you were mentioning, there's so many different things within these categories that will move the needle for you. And overall, these categories are still probably up to where they were pre-pandemic. Uh, it's yeah. just maybe they haven't risen as much as these other ones have. Was that is that fair to say? That is fair to say in that these are relative winners and losers within D2C as opposed to absolute winners and losers. So, you know, D2C for food and drink is clearly up. It's bigger, better than ever before. There are more deep sea companies doing it, but the tailwind is slightly lighter there. Um, at the same time, electronics for boomers who are men who discover in marketplaces, but want to buy directly over time and pick up a subscription because they really want to try it. They didn't have the chance before. That's a big opportunity. So that's winning, but could win even more. That's the key is to understand what's driving these things and exactly where to look. The challenge is if you're out there and you've already started a DC business, it's quite hard to pivot. It's quite hard to adapt and choose where to go next. But the philosophy of understanding your target consumers, what's changing them and how to make these choices about business models, about promotions, about discovery, about channels, about who to market to and what they need to hear from you and what causes them to refer because we know that's the number one driver. That's the key. So the more we can understand those things, any B2C, any D2C business can be a winner and you can create your own tailwinds. You just need to know where to look and what's working for you or working against and then you can make much better choices. And that ability to die, like it's th this, uh, you know, this D2C digest uh, at askatest.com slash DTC to, to download this, to get this full, uh, full report. And, you know, you could dive, you know, there's a, this could launch a million ships. I, I'm thinking about it. I'm like, okay, so, so, so homewares is losing, but if you, if you were, if you run a homeware company, you jump on a test and then you do a homeware survey and you under, you try to undercover, uncover why it's losing. So maybe it's losing, you know, hypothetically because people want to experience these things. So, you know, then you could sort of say, Hey, if we had a augmented reality ability to see our homewares in your home would that, you know, ease that purchase or, or, or something like that. So it, it just, opens up this whole world of other questions that you can ask to uncover, for instance, why homewares is losing, and then what you could do to actually to, to uh, address that actual issue. Totally. And that's, that's why we produce research like this. We are producing data on these topics every day, every hour, every minute. We choose to publish some of it because we hope it can launch a thousand ships. We hope it is helpful because in here are a lot of quite it's quite counterintuitive and valuable learnings. And we're more than happy to publish all of it because we think it's helpful to the market. We want to help D2C companies become better and learn these things. But as you say, the key is to understand for your category, for your products, for your target segment, for your values and proposition, exactly what works. And then we can start to know that, dial up the things that have tailwinds, dial down the things where the market is moving against us. And that accelerates our growth, accelerates our success and makes us far better, uh, gives us a far better ability to compete. And that's how you make better business decisions. Um, so we publish all of this, it's available for free on our website. All you need to do is visit and you can see this data, very fresh, hot off the press, 2000 consumers all across the US representing the whole, but a lot of detail within across these topics. And you could discover your tailwinds and also what you might want to do next, which is really fun. 
Very exciting. So right now, go to askatest.com slash DDC. Make sure you download this uh, entire report and just start thinking about your category and the questions that you can ask these qualified consumers to help you generate your own tailwinds here. My imagination is fired about all the high level sort of things that we could dive in from a, uh, you know, our newsletter perspective. So if you have any, any things that you want to know, even outside of your brand, um, outside of your category, if there's other things that you want to know about the, the D2C space, uh, make sure you can email me at eric at directtoconsumer.co. And, uh, and that's something that we can kind of put into the hopper here as we develop the relationship with the test. I, I think I'm really excited, uh, especially, yeah, about the way our content can benefit from this incredible pool of, uh, of consumers you put together here and this, this, this platform for research. Totally. And the fun thing is even, even today talking for 45 minutes, we've come across things that we want to know, things that we're missing and what we want to test next. That's the whole point of a test is that now these things are possible and we can actually start it right now. So um, come and ask us, come and find out more and looking forward to speaking again soon. Okay. Thanks, Jeremy. We'll leave it there for today and we'll catch up again soon. A pleasure as always. See you soon. Okay. Bye-bye.